All right, Father, um, well, Lord, we, <clears throat> we love you, and we're thankful, Lord, that you, you just come beside us in all of our troubles. I think he's, even as our text says tonight in Psalm 18. And Lord, I know that um, you're with Maggie, that you are fellowshipping with her. And Lord, I pray that at this time, um, as she lacks courage, Lord, I pray that you would provide that for her. It was enough that she discovered that she needed to have cancer removed from her lungs, but now she has this added threat to her life. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just comfort her, strengthen her, Lord, and do for her, Lord, what we can't possibly do for her. Just secure her, we pray. And Lord, I also pray for Tom, who has been hospitalized with COVID. I don't know how advanced his condition is, but I pray, Lord, that you would watch after him and that you would just grant mercy to his body, that you would help him to recover and be strong. Lord, that you would bring him back to us and Maggie safely, Lord. Lord, just minister to our, our loved ones. And Lord, also we thank you for our text tonight. Um, just a beautiful perspective that David provides toward the end of his life, looking back on your faithfulness to him. And Lord, what an encouragement to us that we, we know the same God who has been faithful in the past and will ever be faithful for eternity to us. Lord, use that to encourage us tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see on the screen, we're in Psalm 18. Um, it is a psalm of praise and celebration. I did read one scholar said that, uh, that this psalm is a lament. Um, but after I read through the psalm multiple times, I'm trying to figure out if he actually understands what the word lament means. This is certainly not a lament, but this is a, it's a praise, it's a worship, it's a, an offering of thanksgiving to God for all of his his past faithfulness to David. Uh, if you read ahead or if you've been paging through the psalm itself, you realize that uh, Psalm 18 is one of the longer psalms, having 50 verses and some 14 stanzas. Uh, Old Testament scholar Willem uh, van Gemren, he counts nine structural divisions in the psalm which are embedded in those stanzas. Um, <clears throat> I think that what is so valuable about this particular psalm, and it's like many of the others, but it's, it's really written in the language of experience. This psalm is a reflection on David's experience with God. And each stanza, all 14, uh, represents either a, a totally different experience with God, uh, even though they're all connected, uh, or an expansion on one of the stanzas before it. And the first one, I think, is, of course, is foundational. It sets everything up. And it's there that David is celebrating uh, exactly who God is to him. That's verse 1 through 3. And then the body of the psalm explains why uh, God is all of this to David. Uh, the second stanza describes David's former dilemma and cry for help because of his enemies, and then the next stanza looks at how God is actually in the process of coming to his rescue. Then um, the stanza following that, uh, verse 7 through 12, is actually how God comes to his rescue. Again, the fourth stanza, 13 through 15, God's rescue. 
And then the next stanza, verse 16 through 19, God's actual deliverance of David. And then, then it transitions to the sixth stanza where it explains why it is that God has delivered David. Uh, it's through David's righteousness. Hey guys, there's another person at the door. Would somebody just stand watch? Thanks. And I think that David, as he explains why God delivered him, saying that it was because of his righteousness, uh, verse 20 through 24, I think that that explanation kind of surprises us, but we'll talk about it. The next stanza expands on the sixth, verse 25 through 27. And then in the eighth, David talks about how God equipped him for war. Uh, And the following one, 31 through 34, how God equipped David for combat, for success in combat, and how that in the the, the 10th stanza ensured David's victory. The 11th stanza details David's actual victory over his enemies. And the 12th records how God then, through victory after victory, created a reputation for David, established his fame, which gave him even more success, verse 43 through 45. The 13th celebrates the victories that God had given David. And then the final stanza declares God's deliverance and his mercy toward David and his children forever. That's verse 50. Now, what I think makes this psalm interesting, or important rather, is that it was written by David toward the end of his life. We know this because it's recorded in 2 Samuel 22. And David has come to a point where he's so old now that he can't go into battle. Now, when you read the psalm in 2 Samuel 22, and here there's some very, very minor differences. I don't think they're worth noting. And at the beginning uh, of our psalm here, we have a heading. Uh, and, but this heading is also found in 2 Samuel 22.1. I point that out because many of the headings that we see in the psalms are not considered genuine, but were added later by a scribe. But it's very difficult to dispute the genuine nature of this heading because it's also found in, in 2 Samuel 22. In this psalm, As we've said, David is looking back on years and years of adversity. Uh, We might say potentially from the the time that the first spear of Saul was cast at David in 1 Samuel 18 until the rebellion of Sheba in 2 Samuel 20, or even with later battles with the Philistines. Now, if we take all of those years uh, and, and we look back through all of them, that's over 40 years of of struggle and, and, and difficulty for David. But as David looks back, <clears throat> David declares his love for God, verse 1, and then he remembers how God delighted in him, verse 19b, plus delivered him from his enemies and made David great, which is a really beautiful statement. David says, your gentleness has made me great, verse 35. And then how God will forever show mercy to him and to his children. Interesting perspective, his hindsight. And what you don't find in there, you don't find any complaint from David. There's no criticism uh, about the Lord or how the Lord chose to deal with David's life. He, David only extols the Lord for who he is and what he has done throughout his life. Now, my experience with people may be very limited, but I've never met anyone who looked back on years and years of struggle 
and regretted loving God and trusting him through it all. I've just never met somebody that has done that. And when we look at the narrative of David's life, we know that he lived through decades of heartache, of, of bloodshed and suffering, betrayal and, and loss and failure. And at the end of his life, he wrote this love song to God that celebrates the Lord's faithfulness and his goodness. Now, I believe it's a love song because that's how David begins. So why don't we read the chapter? I won't have you stand, uh, but if you would, read along with me. Um, It's a long chapter. I think it's worth it. Besides, Paul told Timothy to uh, give himself to reading. Uh, The idea there uh, is public reading of the Word of God. So let's do that now. David says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. Your translation, if it's not the New King James or the King James says, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. The pangs of death surrounded me and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. He heard my voice from his temple, and my cry came before him, even to his ears. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of the hills also quaked and were shaken, because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils, and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. He flew upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His canopy around him was dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, his thick clouds passed with hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out his arrows and scattered the foe, lightnings in abundance, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, the foundations of the world were uncovered. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from above, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He also brought me out into a broad place. He delivered me because he delighted in me. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, 
you will show yourself shrewd. For you will save the humble people, but will bring down haughty looks. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they heard of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and come frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing, your, and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. What a great Great psalm. So I don't want to reread all of that to you tonight. Uh, so I'm going to flash the verses, uh, mostly just sticking to stanza at a time. Some of them I'll combine because they're expansions on the others. Uh, but I don't want to read over that all again because I think we'll run out of time. So let's get into the first part. The first stanza, verse 1 through 3. David declares that he loves the Lord at the end of verse 1. As I said, all of the other translations, um, they don't say will love the Lord, but that he loves the Lord. Uh, the New King James carried this rendering over from the King James Version. Then David explains how the Lord had further won David's love and captured David's praise, his adoration. And so having lived a full life of adversity, he says that I, I experienced the Lord's protection I, I, I got to, to know his deliverance. I got to know him as the one that I could trust, David says. So David is saying, because of who God has been to me, he says, I, I, I direct all my love to him. I direct all my praise to him. Great, just decades of experience with the Lord. And as you read this, you get the, the feel very clearly that, that God was not something that David simply learned from reading the Torah, which he studied in depth. This knowledge just came from years of 
of just interacting with the Lord and seeing the Lord's hand in his life. So his, his knowledge of God is deeply relational. And so David sort of gives an example of what that looked like in his life on a number of occasions. The, the details in verse 4 through 6 could be said about a number of the, the, the instances in David's life or the circumstances. As we know from the narrative, he was, he was frequently at odds with superior forces, uh, such as when he was a shepherd boy, he was up against lions and bears. He was probably 12 years old or so. And he came against Goliath when he was still but a boy. When he came against, or, or Saul rather, was against him. Uh, when David had to face the Philistines, he was outnumbered. Uh, all other uh, foreign armies, many of them outnumbered him. And then at one time, even his own son, Absalom, came against him and had mustered much of Israel to harm David. So David knew what it was like to be outnumbered, to be outgunned, to, to, to face the potential of defeat and even death. But he also knew from where his help came from. So whatever circumstance David was in, he always cried out to the Lord. So we can ask the question here. So tell us, David, what did it look like when the Lord responded? Now, if you remember verses 7 through 15, uh, there's this, it's all very poetic language, but it's almost apocalyptic in fashion as he talks about how the Lord is coming and then how the Lord actually delivers. <clears throat> and maybe this is how David imagined things in a spiritual realm. I, I don't know, but he certainly uh, gets carried away a little bit, perhaps. It certainly didn't have it happen in the natural realm. Otherwise, those details would have been recorded in the narrative. Okay? But in response to David's cry, I love this. He describes the earth as trembling because of God's anger. That is God's anger toward uh, David's enemy. That they have put him in such a situation where David has to cry out to him. And he says that around the Lord are, are clouds of thick darkness producing fiery hailstones. What a frightful uh, image of God. He says the ocean would retreat so far that the channels in its depths would be exposed and the foundations of the earth would be seen. And then God would utter his thundering voice. He would send out his arrows, and he would scatter David's foes, vanquishing them with his lightning bolts. Very intense. Okay? Now, all of that's true, of course. It's just been communicated in colorful imagery. In verse 16 through 19, you read this, and you think, well, who could stand against such a force like the God of heaven. Even David says that later. Who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock but him? So David describes this amazing rescue by the Lord from his, not just his enemies, but he says, my strong enemies. But the Lord proved himself stronger. And he says, the Lord did this for me because he delighted in me. So here we see that, you know, in the beginning, David said, I love the Lord. But now he's saying the Lord delights in me. So David's relationship with God was not unilateral, but it was mutual, mutual. But the question is now is why would the Lord delight in David? Verse 20 through 27. David says that the Lord delighted in me and he rewarded me with victory because of my righteousness. He says, because of the cleanness of my hands. He says that in verse 20 and in verse 24. Now, David, obviously, he's not declaring moral perfection. He, would, he was never so presumptuous as to even think that. But 
it is God who is the one that said that David was a man after his own heart. It basically means that David lived to please the Lord. Now, of course, David sinned and failed. But when we look at David's whole life, there's one particular sin that David never did. He says here that I never departed from the Lord. Now, I believe that because when we compare David's life to the other kings, and, that, and, and what was so bad about those other kings was the issue of idolatry. Uh, David is one of few kings that, that, that never departed from the Lord to worship a demon. Never did. And then David himself actually becomes the measuring line for the other kings of Judah. Said that uh, the text in First and Second Samuel would say, or I'm sorry, in First uh, and Second Kings is that he, he did not walk as his father David walked, but he rebelled against the Lord. So David became this, this standard for the other kings. David's life was marked by his commitment to the Lord, not without faltering, but I think that the long game in his life described, was described by faithfulness, faithfulness. Even Jesus, when speaking of Jerusalem, he said that Jerusalem is the city of the great king. That's undoubtedly talking about David in keeping with the narrative of First and Second Kings. And another interesting thing that I think is worth noting is that when David sinned uh, in the, the few that are mentioned, the Lord handled it domestically. Uh, that is, he never allowed David to be disciplined or punished by the pagan nations around him. The, the pagan nations were used to punish the idolatrous kings of Judah and Israel, but never David. David was, he, he always succeeded at war. And as it says here, the Lord delighted in David for his righteousness sake. That's why God went to David's aid the way he did. Um, because of David's righteousness, because his hands were clean, he was actually enjoying the covenant blessing that's mentioned in Leviticus 26, 7 through 8, uh, that if, if Israel, especially if their king was leading them in righteousness, then God would grant them military success. He says a couple of you would put to flight thousands, and David certainly did that especially when he defeated Goliath. Now, in the previous stanza, as we looked at that, David, of course, he, he waxes poetic, uh, even apocalyptic, when he describes how the Lord came to him in battle and, and gave him help. But from the narrative of Scripture, uh, we know that the Lord, on most occasions, he did indeed work mightily through David to defeat his enemies, to which David now explains next. But the language of it's with the language of hyperbole. It's still colorful. And then he will, uh, he will speak with more literal language after that. He says, by the Lord's might, he says, I can run against a troop. That is, I can run against an invading army. Okay? Uh, to run against also means to run through. Does any translation say run through uh, in those verses? The original Hebrew can mean that as well. David says, I could leap over a wall. Uh, presumably a city wall that surrounded an enemy's city. And he says also, by the Lord, I could bend a bow of bronze. This is interesting because what David is now expressing is that when the Lord comes to my aid, he says it puts my enemies at an extreme disadvantage. Don't you love that? Because the Lord is with me, uh, you are bound to fail. I will succeed and I will be victorious. It explains why his enemies never stood a chance. Interesting how David recounts the Lord's faithfulness in all of this. 
but it's not all hyperbole and poetry. Verse 37 through 42, um, I think that all but verse 42 could be said literally, because it's in verse 42, he, he, it's the only place he uses similes. Uh, there perhaps are some figures of speech, uh, but not necessarily. He says that I, I trampled on them, uh, my enemies, and God gave their neck to me. Uh, there was a uh, you, you would stand literally on the neck of your enemy as a symbol of, of victory and success in war. And I don't doubt that David uh, did that on a number of occasions, especially in front of his army, to declare that uh, they were victorious over the enemies of God and of, of Israel. And then because of this, uh, these many, many great successes at war, uh, the Lord then began to spread David's reputation and his fame to the surrounding nations. The reputation of David was so effective in spreading that many would just hear that David was coming and they would come out and they would surrender to him. Others would come out of hiding and it spared David and his men the, the threat of war. Uh, he would just show up and they would just surrender arms and then of course pay tribute to David. Uh, the only people that weren't allowed to um, surrender without harm were those that are said to be under the ban uh, in the Torah, and that was the Canaanites and the Amorites. God commanded that no mercy <clears throat> could be shown to those people. Coming closer to the end here, because of God's faithfulness throughout David's life, and looking back, David is, is compelled to give thanks. He's compelled to praise God, to worship him. And then finally, the last verse, David recalls the Lord's promise to him and his uh, descendants. It's, it's actually from 2 Samuel verse 7, and it has everything to do this, with this one particular descendant who would eternally sit on the throne and rule over the earth. Now, I find that this part is very interesting in the psalm. David looks back on God's past faithfulness as a guarantee of God's future faithfulness. He said, look back to the time probably of my youth, uh, when I faced very difficult times, all the time that I was trying to serve Saul and he put me on the run, I was an enemy of the state, a fugitive. And then all the, the struggles at war with the surrounding nations, all of that, now God was with me. I look back on that, his past faithfulness. And because of all that, now I can look forward to his future faithfulness. He looked back for future assurance. What a great example. So, a question here. It's, it's great that David has a past with the Lord, but what difference does that make for me? What difference does it make for me? Somebody perhaps doesn't have that kind of past with the Lord or that much time uh, in the past with the Lord. And they might say, I haven't experienced his faithfulness. Well, I don't think that that is actually true, uh, not for the Christian. In, in many ways, David's past is our past. His experience is our experience. Consider what Paul said to the Romans. He said, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. We might have hope. The word of God is true. As David said in verse 30, he said, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven, and he, he is a shield to all who trust in him. So God's word is true. Psalm 18 is God's word, so it's true. David's life and experience in First and Second Samuel is in the word of God, so it's true historically. 
The same God who was faithful to David is the same God that we serve. Scripture tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. His way is perfect. His word is without defect. His promises are sure. And it declares, as David says here, that he is a shield to all who trust in him. So David's experience, Paul says, is for our learning so that we would have hope, that we would have hope. Like David, we get to look back on God's past faithfulness in his word as the guarantee of his future faithfulness to us. Those who do that, the scriptures promise that we will be filled with hope. So I think an important question to ask now is, but why are so many hopeless while claiming to know the Lord? Um, we look at the, uh, the research done right now with um, the distress that people have experienced through COVID, the stress, the depression, all of this stuff. Why are so many hopeless while claiming to know the Lord? Well, today, I'm going to give some of my perspective here. Because of various circumstances, many people complain not just to God, but they complain about God. And when we look at Psalm 18, David, in looking back over 40 years of struggle, never complained about God. Okay? And sadly, in the West today, most of our circumstances pale in comparison to the experience of so many others that have endured worse, like David. Do we think that we deserve better than they? I think in the West, we believe that God's faithfulness is demonstrated by the absence of difficulty in our lives and by us enjoying uninterrupted ease. In other words, God's faithfulness is proven to us by how little we need his assistance, which turns out to be by how little we need him. If everything is fine and going our way, essentially meaning that we get to eat out, we, we get to have more than enough and enjoy our toys, well, then God is good. We're blessed. But, but... His popularity can fade in an instant, especially, I think, in the West, at any hiccup, by any degree of distress or conflict. If we have an argument with our spouse or our well pump goes down, the power goes out, the roof leaks, we have to save our money, uh, we're forced to spend our money, we can't eat out tonight, and we can be so petty. In the scriptures, God's faithfulness and his blessing is defined and experienced very, very different from what the Western mind expects. We've, we've grown to expect more than we deserve. Uh, deep down, we feel entitled to our ease and to our comfort. Uh, we feel entitled to our prosperity, but we're biblically ignorant. And we're out of touch with our brothers and sisters around the world who face constant heartache and suffering, but continue to remain thankful and continue to trust the Lord. Do we deserve better than they? In Hebrews 10.34, the author wrote to Jewish believers who joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. That is, they joyfully accepted the confiscation of their personal property. I certainly wasn't talking about your average believer in America who has all his inalienable rights to protect him. Besides, plundered and joyful are mutually exclusive concepts when referring to the same person, right? In Acts 5.41, Luke wrote of the apostles after they were beaten by the Sanhedrin, says they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. Uh, suffering shame and rejoicing do not go together. Uh, not for us. That would be a breach, in our opinion, of God's faithfulness. 
In James 1, 2, he exhorted his audience to consider it all joy, all joy, when you are subjected to a variety of trials. We might be able to express a minutia of joy when we suffer a minor trial, like our Wi-Fi going down, but there's no joy in many varieties of trials. To us, that just doesn't compute. I think how little our God becomes, the bigger our trials get. How his faithfulness diminishes as our trouble increases. All because we believe that God is strong when all is well, and God is faithful when things go our way. That's what we have a tendency to believe, but it's, it's petty and it's unbiblical. You know, our creeds and our theology uh, say much better things about God. Like God is not just powerful, but possesses all power. God is not only faithful, but he can't be unfaithful. God isn't just loving by nature. Scripture tells us that he loves us with an everlasting love. Therefore, it can't have any degrees. It's always the same. He can't love us more because he loves us infinitely and he can't love us less. But while our creeds say so much about him, we can say so little of him at the first sign of trouble. In the New Testament, especially, God's people understood and accepted that we live in a sin-cursed world, and the only good promise to us is that Jesus will be with us to the end, not to relieve our suffering, but to endure it with us. And in the end, that's when we stand in his presence. We, as People must shake the mindset that's been handed down to us from our culture, even if it's from the Christian culture. And we must embrace the truth of God's word, not just about him, but about this life here. And if God's word shapes our expectations and establishes our view and understanding of the world, we won't just be able to better tolerate suffering. We'll be more tolerable as people. We'll have a better witness. We'll have a winsome spirit. We'll be likable. We'll be better worshipers. We'll be thankful. That's what you see with David. He's not jaded by years of suffering. He's joyful. He's thankful and it's, it's winsome. It's attractive. If you ask David when he was 12 or even 16 what he wanted out of life or what he thought life would be like or what he thought life should be like, he would not have told you what was written in First and Second Samuel. Nobody looks forward to a life of suffering. But he would say amen to Paul when Paul said, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, Romans 8, 28. So through it all and in the end, David declares the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the love of God and his tender mercies. So from David's perspective, God wasn't just good. God was wonderful, even though his world was often so terrible. David proclaimed, he said, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Psalm 145, 1 through 3. Now listen, David had good theology, and he saw his world and his experiences through his theology, which kept him from being petty. He, he certainly had emotional ups and downs, as we see in the Psalms. He had his struggles, but his theology, his understanding of God, and his faith in the Lord always brought him back to a sturdy place, a place of worship, a place of joy, and a place of thankfulness. 
You guys, God is no fair-weather friend as Psalm 18 demonstrates. He is loyal to the end. I think David shows us that we should stand with the Lord because if we trust him, we will always see him standing with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, I know that in my own life, it seems so many times during the day, I can be so petty. I can feel like the world's coming to an end because a child is just not behaving perfectly. Or I get stuck in traffic or something petty. And I feel like such a child sometimes in my faith, especially in light of real things that are happening. Lord, I pray that you would grow us into maturity, into the image of Christ. Lord, help us in spite of the way the world is around us, that we would be people that are thankful, worshipful, winsome, and attractive, because we really do trust you. We really do have good theology and interpret the world around us by it. Lord, grant us grace, we pray. Show us mercy and help us to grow in maturity. And Lord, again, we, we don't want to forget Maggie and Tom. Lord, be with them. Encourage their hearts. Stand with them, we pray, and give them strength. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you, and uh, hope to see you Sunday. So see you then.